I, I was practicing law, expected to do that my whole life. And then at the end of, toward the end of 1985, I got a very interesting phone call from a, a man I did not know. He called me and, and he was a lawyer also and using legal language, he said, I'm calling on behalf of an undisclosed principal, which basically means I'm calling on behalf of somebody and I can't tell you who it is. Then he said, can I ask you some questions? Now, normally, you know, if I get a solicitor calling and I'm busy, I just say, uh, no, thank you. I don't have time right now. But for whatever reason, I didn't tell this person to go away. I said, sure, why not? And I, I listened to his questions and the questions were things like, I understand you're interested in church history, is that right? And I said, that's true. What is the likelihood that if you had a free Saturday afternoon, you'd be studying church history? And I said, relatively high. And he asked me a number of other questions like that and hung up. And when he hung up, I thought to myself, that is the strangest phone call I have ever received in my entire life. And I just sort of blew it off. Before we get started in today's episode, I just want to talk about a couple of things. First of all, I want to say thank you to you for listening. I know that you have a lot of options as to things you can listen to, and I know that many of you have subscribed, that you interact with us. Uh, Some of you have decided to become Patreon subscribers, but even if you haven't done that, I just want to know thank you so much. I want you to know that uh, I appreciate it. Um, Everyone here in the Cultural Hall certainly appreciates it. So seriously, thank you. Second, I want to let you know if this is your first time coming to the Cultural Hall or you know, maybe you're coming back or you listen every week. I appreciate the kind of conversations that we can have here in the cultural hall. Sometimes they're fun. Maybe sometimes they're irreverent. Sometimes they question, but I want you to know that it always comes from a faithful place, a place to gain greater understanding, greater knowledge, which I feel like is a gospel principle. Sometimes as you hear these discussions that we have, you you may wonder, hey, you know, what, what, what is he really getting at? And I can tell you, from me, you know, the guy that you listen to week over week, that I really just want to be able to understand more. I want to be able to gain a greater perspective. I want to learn about things that I haven't before. And that is what I hope to get out of not only our articles of news, but also these interviews that we do week over week. And then finally, man, Rick Turley, this episode is so great. I've interviewed over 400 people in the time of doing the Cultural Hall, and and there aren't many that I feel like I could become friends in real life with, and that's definitely what I feel about this episode. It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall. I am very honored to have Richard Turley Jr. Now, I will not call him Richard another time in this interview, as I understand he likes to be called Rick, but you go, I know I've I've heard that name before. Who is this gentleman? Well, uh, up until very recently, he was the public affairs director for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Before that, he was the assistant church historian. He served as eight years as managing director of the Family, Church, and History Department. Uh, He helped bring about FamilySearch.org. He is on the editorial board of the Joseph Smith Papers and author of many, many books. Good to have you here, Rick. Thank you very much. You know... uh, it seems like if I were you, I would just be tired. You've done three lifetimes worth of things. I, I hope you get a break. Well, thank you very much. A lot of what you mentioned is past tense. Uh, today, I'm retired and I'm writing books. So uh, let, let's go right to the immediate uh, past. You served for about four years as the public affairs director. One of the things that I think would be the most exhausting of all those things that I listed. Uh, how can you retired and, and what are you writing? I retired because my wife and I want to do some things while we still can. Her health is not the best. And so 
we're going to try to do a little bit of traveling, visit some grandkids, go some places we want to go while we still can. That sounds to me like maybe a mission too. I'm not, I'm not pushing you. I'm not being bossy, but it sounds like, like maybe a mission in the future too. Well, we, we both like to serve however we can. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. And then books, obviously you mentioned that you're going to be authoring some things. What's, what's coming down the pipeline for you? Well, I've got a number in the works right now. One of them is a sequel to Massacre at Mountain Meadows. When we wrote the book, we said in the preface that there were really two books and that the first represented the first half of the story, which was basically about things that happened up to and including the massacre. And, and the second work was needed on what happened from the massacre on. That's the book that my co-author Barbara Jones Brown and I have finished, but it's too large for our contracted uh, page count for Oxford University Press. So we're going to spend the next few months trimming it down and then we'll turn it in. Oh, wow. I've always wondered on those things where it's like, it can be 50,000 words or 75,000 words, but you have 100,000 words. It's like, well, how am I going to, ch- am I going to pick which of these words is more important than the other? Yeah, that the challenge is that there's a lot of information and you have to decide not only what you're going to include as far as the subject matter is concerned, but how concisely you're going to tell the story. Yeah. You know, I was impressed as I heard you interviewed recently um, with uh, Peggy Fletcher Stack over on Mormonland. One of the things that you talked about is that you feel like there is a considerable amount of knowledge now in today's church than there was even 30 years ago, like people knowing about historic events that have happened um you know, within within and around the church, speaking specifically of Mountain Meadows Massacre. And, and with that, you also lumped the um, Mark Hoffman case. And so what I did after listening to your podcast, I did sort of an informal poll on social media, and I asked three questions to people. Um, have you ever heard of the Mountain Meadows Massacre? I asked uh, if they know who Mark Hoffman was in relation to the church. And then I also asked them if they've ever read any of the the uh, gospel topic essays uh, that used to be at LDS.org and now are at churchofjesuschrist.org. Well, I found it really interesting. Uh, all but one person surveyed said that they had heard of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. About 60% had no idea who Mark Hoffman was, and about 50% uh, had actually spent the time to read even one of the gospel topics essays. I think one of the great advantages we enjoy today in this technological world is that we have a lot of information available to us in our homes through the internet. Yeah. I started doing research. You had to go to a research library of some sort. That meant you had to go there during hours that they were open. A lot of them weren't open 24 seven. In fact, most of them were not open 24 seven. Right. Once you got there, you had to find out where the information was generally had some type of catalog. You had to work your way through. Then you had to go find the item on the shelf. All of that took a lot of time that was other than intellectual time. Now with the internet, you can find things quickly and spend your time with intellectual study instead of with physical work. Yeah, and and with the ability to look at uh, essentially everything, a mass amounts of history, I think that's where some kind of have struggled maybe a little bit with some elements of church history. I want to bookmark that, and I want to get to know a little bit more about you, and maybe we can come back to that a little bit later on. Uh, you went to law school. That doesn't seem like the 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 uh, process that a historian and then a public affairs guy w- would go through. Tell me a little bit about your younger life. Sure. I became deeply interested in Latter-day Saint church history when I was 15 years old. How come? It, 1971 was the year of the, the church's first consolidated magazines. And so the new era, the magazine that was aimed towards youth in the church in 1971, focused on church history, specifically on Joseph Smith. Hmm stake in which I was living in Washington State had a new era bowl, a kind of competition. And so 
I wanted to participate in that. So I, I read all the magazines and devoured the information about it and found it extremely interesting. So that was sort of the start of my serious interest in, in history. So at the same time, let, let me I, add, let me ask you sure. something about that real quick. So if I'm if I'm getting the picture in my mind correctly, it's essentially you're competing against one another and they're asking questions almost like Jeopardy style. Yes. And in my case, I was only 15. Most of the teams were made up of kids who were seniors in high school. Yeah. So in order to compete and be on a team and participate in the competition, I needed to study harder, perhaps, than the rest. OK. Yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt your story. I just want to make sure I got the visual of a young Rick Turley wanting to beat those older folks in the in the uh, new era bowl. And the other thing I need to say is that I just have a, a curious mind. I'm interested in a wide range of subjects. So when I was young and up to the present day, I read widely, a wide range of subjects, not only history, and I read literature, I, I study science, I, I, I read things that would be considered sociology or anthropology. I just have a, a far ranging reading interest. And so I'm not only interested in Latter-day Saint church history, I'm interested in a wide range of things. And that's kind of guided, it guided my education, my formal education, and it's guided my personal education since that time. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, I read that your middle name is Iring, which then lends me to think that there is some sort of familial relation to, you know, Henry B. Iring, the apostle. Henry B. Iring, the apostle is a descendant of Henry Iring, an immigrant from Germany who traveled the United States, was converted to the to our church in St. Louis, and then eventually came west to Utah, then, and then south to St. George, and eventually into Mexico. He, his uh, daughter, Ida Elizabeth Iring, married my uh, great-grandfather, mm. Edward Franklin Turley. And so my father was named after his grandfather, and he was Richard Iring Turley. I'm Richard Iring Turley Jr. Okay. So some relation, but maybe not as close as, as someone maybe would assume, seeing that it's Richard Iring Turley. Yes. Interesting. And, and I love that you just had all of that knowledge into where, you know, that speaks to your family history background that you're like, well, he comes from the German line of Irings who came over like you're very uh, ready and, and uh, able to speak to that. So it's got to be something more than just the new era bowl that gets you into church history, though. Certainly that was the spark. What fanned the flame? Well, during that same year when I was 15, I was living in Washington State. I came down to BYU for a, a national, basically in those days, they used to have sort of all church events of various sorts. Mm -hmm. They had an explorer conference at BYU, 4,000 explorer scouts from around the, the, the country. And we went there and guess what? They had a competition, <laughs> very much like a college bowl competition. So I got engaged in that. And then I, when I, I went back to Utah and our family moved to, to Salt Lake City, and I had for the first time seminary that was released time seminary. Before that, it was early morning. Mm -hmm. And guess what? They had a seminary bowl competition. And so <laughs> I participated in seminary bowl competition, uh, won the district championship. And then when I was uh, at the end of my junior year, I was named the academic vice president of the Salt Lake Valley North Seminary District Council, well. which meant that I wrote the seminary bowl questions on church history topics and judged the competitions for 15 schools. So by the time I graduated from high school, I had spent a lot of time immersed in church history sources and knew more than the average person about the topic. Well, so then it just seems like your fate is sealed, but you go to college to be a lawyer. So how come not, how come not just embrace the love for, for church history and history that you had? I think there are two main purposes for formal education. One, of course, is to end up with some type of 
vocation at the end that you can use to make a living. And the second is to gain a, a personal broad education. I focused on very, very broad educational goals. I studied all kinds of topics while I, while I was in college. At the same time, when I was looking down the road to try to figure out a way to make a living, it, at the time, there weren't a lot of jobs in the history area. There were people who had graduate degrees in history that were having a very difficult time finding a job. So to me at the time, it didn't look like the best route to take. So I went the route of becoming a lawyer with the idea that I could take history as an avocation and study it on the side. Hmm. When I chose the law firm that I did after graduation from law school, I had a matrix on which I listed all the factors I was looking for. And one of the cells on my matrix was proximity to the church archives. <laughs> so I joined a firm that was just a short distance from the church headquarters. It was, in fact, my office was immediately south of Temple Square during the summertime when they cranked open the oval windows on the temple, I could see all the way through it. <laughs> so I was just a stone's throw away from both the, the church archives and also from the family history library and the church history museum. So on my lunch breaks, I could, I could head over there and pursue my avocation. I see uh, in my mind's eye, a young Rick Turley staring out his law office window, looking at the temple in the temple square, just sort of dreaming of the day when he could be able to make a living off of his passions. And I never expected to do that, candidly. You know, I, I was practicing law, expected to do that my whole life. And then at the end of, toward the end of 1985, I got a very interesting phone call from a, a man I did not know. He called me and, and he, he was a lawyer also and using legal language, he said, I'm calling on behalf of an undisclosed principal, <laughs> which basically means I'm calling on behalf of somebody and I can't tell you who it is. <laughs> then he said, can I ask you some questions? Now, normally, you know, if I get a solicitor calling, and I'm busy, I just say, uh, no, thank you. I don't have time right now. But for whatever reason, I didn't tell this person to go away. I said, sure, why not? And I, I listened to his questions. And the questions were things like, I understand you're interested in church history. Is that right? And I said, that's true. What is the likelihood that if you had a free Saturday afternoon, you'd be studying church history? And I said, relatively high. <laughs> and he asked me a number of other questions like that and hung up. And when he hung up, I thought to myself, that is the strangest phone call I have ever received in my entire life. And I just sort of blew it off. And then at the end of 1985, I had gone to a closing with a client. I got back to my office. It was the last Monday in, in 1985. I walked past uh, my secretary. I was talking to a couple other secretaries. She leaned over and said, Dallin Oaks called. Now, I had met him once as a student at BYU, but that was all. I knew who he was. He was a newly called member of the Quorum of the Twelve. But I didn't think he knew who I was. So I found that rather curious. Uh, eventually, we got together on the phone and he said, um, Brother Turley, yes, Dallin Oaks calling. How are you? <laughs> uh, the, how's your family? I, I, Fine. I, all the while, I'd just be like, uh, like scouring my past in my mind. Okay, have I done anything? What would have possibly gone to the Quorum of Twelve? That probably tells you more about me than, than you need to know. So then eventually he says, what are you doing for lunch today? And I said, nothing. He said, would you like to go to lunch? I said, sure. And he said, well, come over to the church office building cafeteria. I'll buy you a bowl of soup. So it was a Monday. We went over to the, I went over to the church office building, just a regular cafeteria with all the employees. We walked through the line together. Each got a bowl of split pea soup, sat down at a table, across from each other. He pulled out a yellow legal pad and just started asking me questions. You know, what church history books that I read recently? What do I do to, to stay tuned into the latest research on church history. Questions like that. We huh. talked for about 45 minutes. And then he said, well, let's go up to my office. We went up to his office. We spoke for another half hour, perhaps. And 
really the only thing you told me about the purpose of the interview was that they were looking for people who had a, a really deep interest in, in church history. And at the end of it all, he said, thank you. And I went back to my law office and uh, really without a clear sense of what the purpose of it was, except that my father had been called as a mission president not long before that. He'd been through a series of interviews. So I just drew some conclusions in my own mind. I thought, well, apparently they're looking for some people who have a church history interest. Maybe they're looking for somebody to sit on a general board or perhaps to serve on an event committee of some sort. I didn't think it was related to a vocation of any sort. Mm -hmm. I went back to my office, continued to uh, do my work. New Year's was the middle of the week. Friday came, the phone rang again. Uh Uh-oh. Brother Turley? At this point, I would be scared uh, about phone calls, but you pick up the phone. He said, Dallin Oaks calling. How are you? Fine. How's your family? Fine. Say, I really enjoyed our lunch the other day. In fact, I enjoyed it so much, I was talking to Elder Packer about it. Can you come over and talk to Elder Packer? I said, sure. So I walked over to the church administration building. I sat down with little Boyd K. Packer, and he asked me again a number of questions without saying much at all about the purpose of the interview. And then after 45 minutes, he said to me, all right, thank you very much. So I stood up and began to walk out of the office. And then as I was walking out, he said, oh, by the way, if you don't hear from us again, don't worry about it. (laughs) So at that point, I walked back to my office thinking, I don't know what the purpose of the interviews was, but one thing I'm clear on, and that is whatever they were looking for, it's not me. Uh, Because that last comment just sort of suggested you know, thanks, but no thanks. I got back to my office. The phone rang again. (laughs) This time it was Elder Dean L. Larson, the senior president of the 70, who was also the church historian and recorder at the time. And he said, Brother Turley, yes. I understand you're going around talking to people. (laughs) I said, well, you asked for it. And he said, can you come talk to me? And I said, I really can't right now. We had a recruit coming into the firm. I was on the firm's recruiting committee. I had to go to lunch with this person. So I said, can I meet you late in the day? He said, that's fine. So I went over to his office and sat down and uh, we had a little bit of chit chat. Then he kind of looked off in the corner and said to me, the head of the church history department is retiring after 52 years of service. And we were wondering, uh, would you like to take his place? Oh my gosh. I had no idea that that question was coming. I, again, I was thinking about perhaps some type of volunteer activity of some sort. So when he suddenly said, basically, we want you to be in charge of the operation. I was stunned. And I must have appeared stunned because he looked at me and said, would you be interested? And I said, I think I might be. And he said, well, go home, talk to your wife and call us next week. Well, the circumstances had it. My wife, Shirley Turley, was coming downtown that That, day. No, that can't be real. That is really her name. Shirley Turley. She must love love you to have accepted a lifetime (laughs) of Shirley Turley. She, she loves the name. It's a great conversation piece. That is for sure. Sorry, I interrupted. So she was coming down that Friday afternoon to go look at formals. The law firm I joined was a Chicago-based law firm, and it would fly, the firm would fly us to Chicago for social events. And it was flying Shirley and me to Chicago for a ball at the Ritz-Carlton. I had just graduated from law school. We didn't have, you know, clothing, formal clothing. So we were going out and look at formals. And as we were going down the elevator... I said to her, before we go look at formals, can we just sort of walk around outside? <laughs> and she said, sure. So we started walking around. I need to understand, going to law school, we anticipated that our income would increase. We'd have a lot more money than we had as a student. And yeah. so we had begun to look at homes and lots and 
we had some ideas in our mind about what our standard of living would be. So as we're walking around on South Temple, I, I turned to Shirley and I said, that's my first question, what if we were never rich? Wow. Kind of looks at me funny. And then my next question was, what if we didn't go to that ball in Chicago? And then she says, something's up. Tell me what's up. And I had kind of filled her in on these interviews as I'd had them one at a time. And so I explained this offer to head the church history department. And she said, well, what would you like to do? And I said, well, what would you like to do? And she said, whatever you'd like to do. And I said, I think I might want to do it. And she says, if you'd like to do it, I'll support that decision. And so I called them up and January 20th, I was working for the church history department. Wow. That almost seems like a, a made up story from beginning to end. Had you not just told it and had I not been able to look into your eyes and, and see you tell it, I don't know that I would have believed it. So it was a complete surprise. I never intended to make history my vocation, but I am grateful for the 34 years I had at church headquarters, 30 of them spent in the church history department, 12 overlapping years overseeing the family history department as well, and then four years in public affairs, which uh, merged with another office to become the church communication department. It was a very interesting career. Yeah, for sure. I want to take a break right here. And uh, when we come back in the second block of the Cultural Hall, I want to talk about some of those specific moments uh, while you were with the uh, the history department. Uh, specifically, I want to talk a little bit around Mark Hoffman, because you did author a book that sort of deals with that time period. I also want to talk about the, the huge difference um, that the Internet made with church history and the church. And, uh, and then I want to pick up... Uh, a little bit more on what it's like to be public affairs director for the church. We'll come back and we'll do that in the second block of the cultural hall. Hey, it's me, Richie T. I want to take a second and talk to you about best DJ in Utah, or I should really say right now, best guy who cleans out his carport and best guy who cleans out his storage unit and best guy who cleans out his carpenter studio and has done a lot of episodes of the cultural hall. Not a lot of DJing happening right now, as you can imagine, with the quarantine. It is the socially responsible thing to do. But I will promise you this. I bring the party. As soon as this is lifted, as soon as these rainy clouds of self-quarantine are gone, I will bring the party. Now, you're going to have a work party? Great. You're going to have a church party? I do the church parties, too. You're going to have a wedding or special day, or maybe you just want to have a post-corona party. I would love to be that DJ for that party. You can hit me up. You can get a quote simple and easy at bestdjinutah.com. Hey, this is Dan, the laptop man from PC Laptops. I know we're going through a lot right now. Many states are quarantining people to their homes so that they have to work remotely. One of the things that's really important is to have a computer that's functioning correctly. One with a good webcam, one that's fast so you can be productive, one that has a good quality screen because you're gonna be on this all day remotely. Computer supply has been strained because manufacturing has almost stopped. At PC Laptops, we've secured a limited quantity of laptop and desktop computers that are backed with a lifetime service guarantee. They're available for you right now in limited quantity. The great thing about PC Laptops is this. Once you buy your new computer, if you have any problems or questions, we're here to take care of you. Also, to make it really easy right now, We've arranged with some banks to offer 12 months special financing. Get into PC Laptops right now because at PC Laptops, we're here for you and we're in this together. PCLaptops.com. Time for the second block of the Cultural Hall. If you enjoy this conversation and other conversations that we've been having, 
uh, we would encourage you to become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall. You just go to patreon.com slash the Cultural Hall and you can pledge a couple of bucks to help this show continue to go on. Pays for things like hosting or, for example, uh, this call is done via Zoom. So if you are a Patreon saint, you're able to see the video um, that we're doing of this interview. It's patreon.com slash the Cultural Hall and a huge thanks to everyone who has already done that to this point. Now, uh, Rick, so you, you get into this calling. Where where even is the office? Is, are you are you able to get an office in, in that building that you'd longed for for a few years? At the time I joined in January of 1986, the church history department was in two locations. The church archives and church history library were in the east wing of the church office building. So that big block that goes off the east side of the church office building, four floors. Mm-hmm. And then the, the museum division was housed in the brand new church museum, which was then called the Museum of Church History and Art. It's now called the Church History Museum. And that's the one that's directly west of Temple Square, correct? That's correct. Just north of the Family History Library. Wow. So uh, that, I mean, I guess we start there, right? There are several buildings that came into play while you were in charge of the department. The one that is just on the north side of North Temple and the, you know, the um, not restoration, but the reorganizing of of that building, the one that's west of Temple Square. The challenge that we faced when I became the managing director was that we had a lot of very, very fine people who knew a lot about what the needs of the church were. And one of those needs, a big challenge, was a, a better facility than the one in which the materials were being housed. It turns out that the east wing of the church office building was a portion of the building that went through a lot of optional uses as they were planning it. And so it was really designed for office space. Mm. Ultimately, they decided to turn it into a, a church history archives and library, but the, the floors weren't really designed to take that type of load. The facility itself had windows, which is something you don't want in an area that you want to have secure and climate controlled, particularly because sunlight can come in and, and the sunlight can fade the spines of books. It's also not entirely secure because you know somebody who had a in, in those days, somebody who had a rock and a and a Molotov cocktail could take the whole thing down. Yeah. It turned out that there weren't any sprinklers in that wing either. Now, that's all been remedied. That that area now has sprinklers and it's, and it's controlled and so forth. But at the time we were there, my big worry was that the whole thing would go up in smoke with a fire or that an earthquake would take it down. And the fire particularly bothered me because one day I was standing on the roof of a home we were living in at the time in West Jordan because someone had called and said, the West Jordan Seminary is on fire. Huh. So we climbed up on our roof and we looked we looked south down the street and we could see this black smoke billowing up from it. You have to realize that the West Jordan Seminary was basically a steel and concrete structure that was full of flammable things like books and furniture and curtains and carpet and so on. Well, it was also almost directly across the street from the fire station, you know, less than two minutes away from it. Hmm. So we thought, well, it'll be an immediate response. They'll hose it down. It'll be fine. No. Now, the, the, the response was immediate, but this concrete and steel structure with flammable material in the middle was just an oven. And essentially, it was a total loss. Yeah. So I then began thinking about the east wing of the church office building, which in those days didn't have sprinklers. It was basically a big concrete and steel box with all of the church's historical treasures in it. And I worried about that a lot, as did the colleagues that I was working with. So we developed a team of people to study how the best historical facilities are constructed around the world. And it took us 11 years to do the study and get the approvals. 
and then four years to construct the new church history library, which is a state of the art facility that is very earthquake resistant, very fireproof, and it's just finally a home that is equal in terms of its capacity to store and re retain things to the treasures that are inside of it. And, and then also with this, isn't this about the time that the granite vault up uh, one of the canyons? Is it Big Cottonwood, Little Cottonwood Canyon? It's Little Cottonwood Canyon. Yeah. And that, that's a facility that was built uh, mid 20th century, but uh, we did end up retrofitting it for a more modern type of usage. So if you drive up today and you look towards the left where you used to sort of see those cave-like entrances, what you see now is a very fine uh, building at the front of it that makes it more secure and helps with a lot of other features to make it a better modern storage facility, not only for the, the physical records that are stored there, but also for the digital records that are part of our modern age. You know, if the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has an Area 51, those granite vaults are our are, are Area 51. People... People want to know what's in there. People want to know what's not there that we all think is there. What can you sure. What can you tell us? Yeah, so let me demystify it. <laughs> it, it. Its original purpose was essentially to preserve the records of the church during a Cold War period. You know, everybody, when I grew up, people were concerned about uh, some type of thermonuclear warfare. Uh, I saw as a child a film about building a bomb shelter in your home. You know, we would have these drills in school and so forth. And so you, you can imagine that we've got all these priceless records and there was concern that there might be some type of uh, World War III that might lead to the destruction of these records. So the, it was constructed originally with the idea of putting records in there and having them protected from that type of warfare. As the Cold War went away, we began to realize that it's probably its principal use is for long-term storage because it is a remarkably good facility for maintaining temperature over time. So in the, in the summer and in the winter, the temperatures don't vary that much. Mm. Now, the Church History Library, we have a lot of equipment that helps us to maintain the environment just right. But really, the major purpose when it was first built, its, it's major usage, it did have a few records. There was some original material that was in there, but not much. It was mostly old books that didn't fit very well in the facilities downtown. And then its major use was to preserve all of the microfilm masters for the family history work that was done around the church. So when you had family history branch libraries and you wanted a copy of a film, an order was sent up to the Granite Mountain Records Vault, the master was pulled, a, a positive copy was made from the negative, and then that positive copy was circulated. And if it got lost or destroyed, you still had that negative in the vault. Well, during my time in, in family history, we began to digitize all those records. And so there wasn't a need to keep all of those records available in such a way that you could pull them easily. So we took the masters digitized them, and then we compacted them together in the, in the, in the vaults. And then we, we began to store digital records that be, became the new storage medium for what we do in the future. So a lot of what you can stream on FamilySearch and what you can stream on the church history uh, websites is stored in one copy there. And there's multiple copies stored in other locations for preservation purposes. I tell people that when Joseph Smith gave up the 116 pages and they were lost, he learned a lesson that all of us with computers learned. And that is back up, back up, back up. So when he, when he, trans, when he translated the Book of Mormon, he had Oliver Cowdery and his brother Hiram and others uh, preserve a backup copy that they made. And it was primarily the backup copy that was taken to the printer and used for the publication of the Book of Mormon. So that's one thing we do is we, we store multiple copies in multiple locations. So if there's a, a great 
earthquake along the Wasatch Front and it takes down the Granite Mountain Records Vault, no worry, there's a copy somewhere else. Are there other uh, similar or similar-like vaults around the world? Uh, there's actually one more in, in Little Cottonwood Canyon that's used for commercial storage. And then there are, there are various caves that are used in, in locations around the world for the storage of things. But nowadays, most of the digital records are stored in these basically what would look like a large server farm. If you've been into a big computer facility, you've seen all these banks and banks and banks of servers. Mm -hmm. They look somewhat like that, although there's a difference between creating a, a server farm and creating long-term digital storage. I won't go into the details, but I could. It's scientifically different. So let me, I guess one follow-up question, because I know people are fascinated about this and the fact that you're willing to talk even a little bit about it. Um, when you go up or when you went, I guess, up to the vaults, um, were you able to tell your wife that you went up to the vaults or was it just if she asked you, what'd you do today? You had to say, oh, I worked. I was doing things. Or can you can other people go to the vault or is it only specific employees? How does all that work? Early on, we had tours up there, but then there were two worries, basically, that shut down the, the tours up there. One was security. If sure. you've got all these records that you've gathered from around the world and you know paid a, a lot of money to store for the use of people for family history and other purposes, you want to make certain that some crazy person doesn't take it down. Uh, the second reason, interestingly, was that the more people you put in there, the more it affected the temperature. Hmm. And so ultimately, it was closed down. But we have some really great video online, so you can actually see what it looks like being inside of there. And I would venture to say that virtually anybody who's interested in family and church history has used records that are stored up there in digital form. Hmm. So it's really not that mysterious. Uh, you know, people talk a lot about it, but if you if you went up there, what you'd basically see is you'd see these big tunnels with this sort of corrugated metal uh, frame around them, in which you have shelves with a lot of microfilm stored on them, a few books stored on them, but the books that are stored up there are not the really great ones. Mm. They're the duplicate copies or the copies that were too big to store. The, the really precious, the, the really key items are stored in the church history library, the new mm. facility that we built. Cool. That's fun. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Mark Hoffman, certainly one of the, the bigger first things that you had to deal with. Uh, just on board people, if they don't even know who Mark Hoffman is, uh, talk about him, his relationship with the church and and specifically with church history. In the 1980s, there was a, a young student, student from Utah State University, who purported to find a very valuable early church history document. And that document was examined by experts, and nobody could find any reason to say it wasn't really what it purported to be. And so he ends up quitting school, and he begins a, becomes a full-time document dealer, and people go to him to buy and sell documents. And over time, he began to, quote-unquote, discover other important documents. And some of them were, were co very controversial in nature. Bottom line, his, his career, his public career lasted about five years, at the end of which some bombs went off in Salt Lake City. Uh, one killed uh, Steve Christensen, who was a businessman in downtown Salt Lake City. One killed Kathy Sheets, a, a housewife in, in the, basically the southeast side of Salt Lake City. And then a third one nearly killed Mark Hoffman himself. Police investigators and the FBI and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms got involved and began to look into this whole thing. And they finally concluded that the bomber was none other than the third victim, Mark Hoffman. And it turned out that, that to make a long story short, he had been forging his best items, hmm. the items that, that came to the attention of the public most often. And he had really three motives for his forgeries. Number one, 
he wanted to make money by them and he made over a million dollars with his forgeries. Wow. Number two, he wanted to defy authority. Early on as a, as a teenager, uh, he decided that he just didn't like authority. And so he'd like to do whatever he could to defy that authority. And number three, he wanted to undermine the traditional history of the church. So he created documents that were intended to do that. Long story short, he ended up uh, in a plea arrangement with prosecutors. He is currently serving a five year to life prison sentence with a recommendation by the sentencing judge that he never be paroled. You know, it, I mean, and that's a lot. <laughs> what, what you what you just said, it's like, yeah, and then it ended up with a bombing and he almost died at a bomb by his own hands. I mean, it, it wasn't just church documents, though, that he forged. Uh, it was also, you know, these these um, national historical documents. Yes. And in fact, near the end of his career, I think what he realized is like a lot of business people, and that's what he was. Forgery was his business. And he had kind of glutted the market. Mm -hmm. of people who were interested in buying church documents. He realized if he was going to get into a bigger market, command a bigger market, command higher prices for his things, he needed to go more broadly than that. So in many ways, the, the ultimate document he actually ended up creating was the Oath of a Free Man, which purported to be the first document to be printed in America. Mm -hmm. And he was selling, trying to sell that for $1.5 million by itself. And there were some interested buyers. No one actually ended up buying it because the bombs went off. And that, of course, put people on, on edge and made them suspicious. But uh, if he had not been so interested in getting money and kind of getting beyond his ability to produce things, which is really what kind of unraveled him, if, if he'd been patient, sadly, and we might still be dealing with his forgeries today thinking that they were real. Hmm. You know, it, he, it, it, it's a fascinating subject. And and. I think that where some people would either attack the church or, or kind of it raises an eyebrow is, um, you know, one of the documents that he he sold to the church, as I understand it, is a thing called the Salamander Letter, uh, which essentially throws shade on some of the foundational principles of the church. And I think that people have questioned uh, about that. Why would the church pay for something that is so so grand, so exaggerated, so obviously not real to to try and either cover it up or protect it or like why why if they knew it was wrong, why would they spend so much money to try and get it? So the church did acquire a number of documents from Hoffman in the back of my book about the case called Victims. You can see a list of all the documents acquired from Mark Hoffman. But the Salamander letter was not one of those that the church paid for. Oh, okay. It was offered to the church by one of Mark Hoffman's associates. And President Hinckley declined purchasing it. Oh, okay. So he ended up selling it to Steve Christensen, who was his first bombing victim. Steve Christensen paid a lot of money to have it reviewed by document experts. And then he ended up donating it to the church. Hmm. And then the church published the, the Salamander letter. Uh, it was a letter that was intended by Mark Hoffman for two, two purposes that are quite interesting. The first purpose was to change the traditional narrative of the church's origins. So this document basically changed the Moroni, Angel Moroni story to a story about a salamander becoming a spirit. Yeah, let me so just really, let, yeah, let me just stop real quick. Yes, you heard that right. A salamander turning into a spirit. Okay, proceed. Well, if that was the initial purpose to again, remember his three motives. He wanted to get money, so he sold it for tens of thousands of dollars. Number two, he wanted to defy authority. And to him, he got this perverse pleasure out of making people in authority feel very uncomfortable mm. with, with the document. And number three, he wanted to change the traditional narrative. 
But there was a longer motive that he had in mind. His ultimate goal from a Latter-day Saint forgery perspective, not the national, I mean, he, he forged George Washington, he forged a lot of national characters uh, documents, but his ultimate purpose for Latter-day Saint history was he was going to produce the lost manuscript of the Book of Mormon, hmm. which of course people knew was going to be in the handwriting of Martin Harris because he was Joseph Smith's scribe at the time. The problem was there weren't a lot of Mark, Martin Harris handwriting samples other than a few signatures. Hmm. So he produced the Salamander letter in what was purportedly Martin Harris's handwriting so that when he discovered, quote unquote, the 116 pages, people would say, well, let's see how the handwriting compares with the Salamander letter. And guess what? It would be exactly the same. The bombings disrupted that project, but investigators found notes that he had made in preparation for doing this this forgery that never really happened. Oh, wow. Yeah, definitely thinking long game as far as yep. as far as all that goes. I, I want to take another break real quick. And when uh, we come back, I want to hit up uh, the advent of familysearch.org uh, and, and your hand in that and then uh, push till modern day. We'll do all that coming back in the third block of the cultural hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember, if you have a guest suggestion that you would like to have uh, take place here in the Cultural Hall, you can always email us, contact at theculturalhall.com, or you can find us on any social media. Uh, it is uh, at the Cultural Hall on Facebook. It's at the Cultural Hall on Twitter. We're on Pinterest as well. Uh, we do the Instagram. Find us really wherever you find anyone. It's at the Cultural Hall, and we'd love your comments, your questions, and uh, those guest suggestions for future episodes. Rick, a, a fascinating story, and maybe I can twist your arm and have you come back and talk more about Mark Hoffman, because I know for anyone who didn't know anything about this, what we just did to them is they went, wait, a salamander, a bombing, uh, and you guys are just going to move on? We're not going to do any more about that? So... Maybe I can twist your arm to do that in the future, but you have such an amazing uh, legacy in your employment that we have to move on in order to, to spend time with all of it. Uh, FamilySearch.org, not necessarily your invention, but you oversaw it. So talk up to people about how that came about. And I want to say I'm always self-conscious when I do interviews like this because I was part of a team, a team of people, many of whom were far more educated and smarter than I am. Yeah. But I just wanted to help those teams progress and grow and, and get to their objectives. So I tried to gather around me people who were very, very intelligent and ask them, so what do we need to do? Yeah. And in the family history realm, so I just, let me back up and say that 10 years into my management of the church history department, I was approached by church leaders and asked if I would oversee the family history department, which is a much larger and at that time, a global operation, unlike church history, which has become global, but was not global at the time. I agreed to do that, thinking that I would be released from the church history responsibility and given family history. I got a letter from the First Presidency formally appointing me managing director of the 
family history department, just as I'd been managing director of the church history department. And being a, a lawyer, I read all the, the print. And so I read down to the bottom paragraph. The bottom paragraph basically said, until we backfill your position in church history, run that department as well. <laughs> so I ended up running both family and church history for 12 years. During the first four years, I had two offices, 21 direct reports, two executive secretaries. And I, I literally ran from my fifth floor in the church office building tower office down to my east wing second floor office all day long, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Great, great for exercise. And let me just insert here, you know, you talk about wanting to, to recognize a team of people that were smarter than you. I just want you to know that I automatically assumed that everybody was smarter than you. So I hope you don't take... I'm just teasing you. <laughs> <laughs> I would assume that too. I'm just teasing. I, I couldn't let that go. So so you actually had two offices. You're managing, direct, managing director of these two huge arms of the church. And then we have uh, the advent of the internet. This is the time where it's like, guys, this is, this is all moving into the space we know as online. But what does that mean? So we've got these really, really smart people I'm working with. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to gather them together and say, what do we need to do, folks? And one of the things that we needed to do in the family history realm and that we also ended up doing in the church history realm is to move from the realm of the physical record to the digital record. Mm. So family history, as I mentioned when I was talking about the Grand Mount Records Vault, had been based primarily on microfilm records. And what we realized is that there were real limitations to microfilm records. And we also realized that there was a limitation to the model of having to go to a research library to do your work. So the model we created in family history and then later church history was the model of being able to do your research. And I used to say this all the time in, in meetings, we want to do the research in our pajamas and our stocking feet in the middle of the night. Yeah. So that's the new model we created. So in the family history realm, that required that we do a lot of things more or less simultaneously. One of the things we had to do is we had to take the 2.4 million reels of microfilm at the Granite Mountain Records Vault and we had to convert them into digital records. Now that sounds easy today, but back then the technology wasn't there. Hmm. And so we had to develop some of the technology working hand in hand with technology companies in order to, to do that. The second thing we needed to do is once we had, oh, and by the way, we were collecting information through film cameras around the world. We get about 5,000 reels of new film coming in a month. We needed to convert those regular cameras into digital cameras. So we had then two sources of digital information. One, the microfilm being converted at the Granite Mountain Records Vault into digital form. And two, the original records being captured in the field digitally and streaming to us. Wow. So that's the source. We had that information would flow into us and then we had to have, find a place to store it. So we had to create a digital records preservation system, which was a massive computer project by itself. Once we had those digital records, then we had a big pile of pictures. If you think about it for a moment, a digital snapshot of something is just a bunch of pixels. Mm -hmm. It's not searchable by itself. So we had to figure out a way to take these pictures and make them machine readable. So we created what's now known as family search indexing, which may well be the largest crowdsourcing project in the world. And we got hundreds of thousands of volunteers to agree to look at these pictures and type information from them that could be machine searchable. So we created family search as the system for looking at this, family search indexing as the way of making the records searchable. And then in those days, most people didn't have internet access throughout the world. So we started taking our family history centers and putting them within proximity of our church members around the world 
and then connecting them together with the internet, which sounds easy today. It wasn't so easy back then. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we had to create a three-tiered support system that was global. So we put all these pieces together and created the beginnings of what is now Family Search today. And of course, from those early beginnings, it has become far more advanced over time. Again, with a lot of smart people doing a lot of really intelligent things. Kudos to all of the team. It's a, it's such a fascinating thing because, yeah, if we look through it with our 2020 lenses, we go, yeah, give everybody the internet and let them search the files. That's how we can do it. But even just 20 years ago, 25 years ago, insurmountable, and you guys were inventing processes to be able to have that even occur, things that had never occurred before. And we, you know, we were talking to ourselves, we had big dreams, and we were saying, well, we want this to be big. Well, how big do you think it can be? You think a million people could come? You know, you think there would be a million hits a day? Yeah, we'd like to think so. But, you know, a million hits? Are, are we being megalomaniacs here? You know, are we, are we thinking too big? Uh -huh. No, we don't think we're thinking too big. Well, it just so happened that before we formally launched Family Search, the URL got out. We were doing some beta testing and the URL got out. And when the URL got out, suddenly we're having 5 million hits. Oh, my gosh. So we thought, wait a minute. You know, we've engineered this thing. And we thought, what if we formally release it? How many are we going to get? If we're getting 5 million, how many might we get? And we thought we could be getting 25 million hits a day. And so we thought, well, we better engineer it to withstand that type of traffic. Then we did the formal release. And as part of the formal release, we had a couple of news conferences. President Hinckley and Elder Christofferson did a news conference from the Family History Library. And then Elder Nelson, now President Nelson, and I went to Washington, D.C. and did a a press conference at the at the press club there in Washington, D.C. by the mall. And just as we were finishing the one in Washington, D.C., one of the public affairs people approached me, Kim Farah, and she said to me, Rick, the Today Show wants you on tomorrow. Huh. And I'd done the Today Show before to talk about family history. And so I flew over to, to New York. And the next morning, I got on with Katie Couric, and we formally announced Family Search on the Today Show. Traffic flooded our servers on that day. And we ended up having to give people 15 minute periods in which to come in and do the research. <laughs> as best we can tell, we had about a hundred million hits that day. Oh my gosh. So it, it went large. And we, in fact, we had industry people tell us that it was at that time, the fastest website in the world to go large like that. Wow. Others have surpassed it since that time, but we were, we were breaking ground at the time. This was fresh territory for us. Huh. You know, and I'm sure that uh, just looking at that uh, that one event, that FamilySearch.org, that's something that you, along with your team, take a lot of, of pride in. And if that was the only thing that you had done in your entire life, you could rest assured knowing that you made a difference, not only for the eternity of those souls who are able to be connected through FamilySearch.org, but just a, 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 an amazing feat in the tech world itself. Well, and I want to say that we ended up bringing a lot of very smart people in from industry who gave up very high paying jobs and came to work for the church for the purpose of, of creating this wonderful product. So so then you decide public affairs like you just hadn't had enough. Right. You wanted to you had this family history thing down. Why not try the next hardest or probably the hardest job within the church? Let's do public affairs. Tell me about was it lunch with uh, Elder Oaks? Like, how did, how did we get there? No, I, I was approached by, by my secretary one day, and she said to me, you've got this appointment. And it was an appointment with two members of the 12. And I said, well, what's, it, what's this about? And it was not unusual for me to meet with, you know, high-ranking church leaders in the roles, various roles that I had. 
And she said, I don't know. So I went into the meeting and, you know, without going into all the detail that I did before, long story short, at the end of it, they said, we'd like you to become the new managing director of the public affairs department. It was a new challenge, you know, sounded, sounded interesting to me. Uh, over the years, I had ended up working with the public affairs staff because there were a lot of questions that came up over the years with things like the Mark Hoffman case that dealt with church history. And so they'd come over to me and say, well, we want, we want you to do this television interview. We want you to do this print interview. We want you to do this radio interview. And so I already knew a lot of the people who were in that department. And they, they, they had said to me historically, they say, we consider you to be a member of our department. <laughs> and I never thought it would be literally true, just like I thought I never thought I'd end up working in the church history area. So I went to work as the new managing director from the, for the public affairs department. And again, a lot of people who were, had better education, far more experience, and were much smarter than I was, my job was basically to help people do the things that they already knew how to do. Hmm. Uh, but public affairs is a, is a really fast moving area. If you think about it for a minute, it's kind of the waterfall that pours into the reservoir of history. I, I told people that all I did was I moved to the headwaters of the history. <laughs> if the church history and family history areas are the reservoir, I moved to the headwaters. But a very, very fast moving area. Every morning I'd turn on my phone, I'd get a report from around the world of what, you know, what was going on. You'd find out what was happening in Manila and Moscow and uh, Beijing and Johannesburg and, and Paris and so forth. We have staff members in the, in the communications area in every area of the church at least two. In, in, in Europe, we have three because we have so many disparate countries and languages. But a lot goes on in the course of a, a global organization around the world on, on any given day. So it's a very fast-paced area, uh, one that was very interesting. Uh, certainly, it's an area where I never got bored. In fact, I, I will say that in 34 years of working in the various roles that I did, boredom was not a problem. Yeah. Exhaustion was, but not boredom. Yeah, it doesn't sound like there would be time for boredom at all. Uh, you know, it's fascinating to me th throughout the years of of my paying attention with the church, uh, the things that I feel like um, like that the church sort of makes public commentary on that, that you know, sometimes you like uh, what am I thinking of most recently? Certainly, I feel like they specifically President Nelson has done a tremendous job about commenting on things with the coronavirus. Right. Even just as recent. Um, as yesterday saying, hello, you know, everyone, we love you. We wish to be, you know, back in church and worshiping with you. But, you know, essentially for the time being, let's just all be safe and be healthy. There, there are lots of times that, uh, that I find uh, that, the, that the church is right on time. And then other times that I feel like, I wonder why the church hasn't commented on this particular issue or weighed in. What, what sort of guides that and how much involvement do you have with that? So there's sort of two parts to your question, so let me answer them in sequence. One, I think it's fascinating, it's just utterly fascinating to me that the man who ends up being the president of the church just before this pandemic occurs is a famous medical doctor. Mm -hmm. And so he, he brings to the table a vast experience in the medical arena that supplements the other knowledge that he's gained as a church leader over time. And I think that's fascinating. In terms of decisions about what the church comments on, I will say that the principal factor that guides that is what they what church leaders feel relates most to the church's mission or it's what they now call divinely appointed responsibilities. And so if something relates directly to that, they're probably going to comment on it. If it doesn't, even though it's something that's very, very good, 
they're going to leave that to individual members to participate in. And one that people approach me often, I, in my own personal kind of feelings and responsibility, I, I like to run rivers, I like to hike, I like to, to ski, I like to be out in the outdoors. And so the protecting our environment is very, very important to me individually. Mm-hmm. So people have approached me and said, well, why doesn't the church make a statement about XYZ thing related yeah, to being good stewards of the earth. It's something that I, I, you know, every general conference, I'm like, please, someone do a talk about recycling and taking better care of the earth. And, and for whatever reason, we don't. And the reality is that the church and its leaders seek to be good stewards of the earth. They, they, they feel that there is a, a scriptural. I mean, if you, if you study Latter-day Saint scriptures, you can see that stewardships of all kinds are important, including taking good care of the earth. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of responsibility that they want individual members to engage in personally mm. while they engage in the four divinely appointed responsibilities. Pre- President Oaks gave a talk one time that perhaps his most famous talk called Good, Better, Best. Mm-hmm. He had looked at an old Sears Roebuck catalog that used to mail order things and you could get a product that was good or you could get one that was better or you can get one that was best. And essentially in his talk, he said, we don't have time as individuals to do everything that's good, even though they're good. Mm-hmm. So we need to focus our lives on those things that are best. And the church follows that example. They focus on the, the very vital, divinely appointed responsibilities. And then they leave other areas of responsibility to individual church members to exercise their own agency to engage. In. And that's, that's one of them. Yeah. So that's, I think, probably the key distinguishing factor that I observed during my time there they're going to make comments on things that they think are related to the four divinely appointed responsibilities, which are basically to preach the gospel, to redeem the dead, to help individual church members live according to gospel principles, and then to care for the poor and needy. Those mm-hmm. are going to be the four major areas of responsibility. And things outside that, even though they'd be extremely good, are not going to get a lot of attention. When I was the managing director of the church historical department, as it was then called, people would say, well, why don't we have a museum to famous Latter-day Saint scientists? And as one whose family was in the science and engineering realm, my father was an engineering professor at the University of Utah. Both of the science buildings at, B- at the BYU and University of Utah were named after I-rings, you know, mm-hmm. my, my distant relatives. People would say, well, why don't we create a museum to scientists? And the answer is that would be good, but that would not be one of those divinely appointed responsibilities, so we're not going to do it. Hmm. You know, our time is growing short with you, and I want to ask you this question. How did you, uh, how did you meet Court and Mary Shirley Turley? I moved from Washington State to Utah, and during the beginning two weeks of my senior year at Skyline High School in Salt Lake City, I had a counselor call me in unexpectedly. And she said to me, Rick, you're one of our very finest students, but we've just been reviewing your transcript and realized you can't graduate from a Utah high school because you missed sophomore history, which is a requirement for graduation in Utah. So knowing that you're a senior and you wouldn't want to go in with a bunch of sophomores, we have given you the opportunity either to do that, to go in with the sophomores, or you can take a sociology class instead, and that will be an equivalent for that. And she assumed I was going to take the sociology class, but this little voice popped into my head that said, no, take the sophomore history class. You might meet meet some nice sophomore girl. Mm -hmm. It was bizarre, but that's the line that popped into my head. 
And so I walked down the hall with the counselor who was incredulous. She thought, why does the senior want to go with a bunch of sophomores? Even before we walked into the room, I looked in and I saw her. She just popped out and I ended up sitting on the opposite, sitting on the opposite side from her. And then the teacher rearranged the seating. We ended up sitting next to each other. And she engaged me in conversation about some things. And before long, we were dating. And she became my wife after I returned from my mission. Where did you serve? Japan, Tokyo. Oh, that's awesome. What a, what a great story, too. I had no idea that that was going to be what came from it. But high school sweethearts and that your wife's name is Shirley Turley it is the win for me for today. We ask three questions of everyone who steps into the cultural hall. So I'll ask those of you right now. The first question is, is do you have a calling currently? And if so, what is it? So I had my most recent calling was with Shirley directing the family history and temple work in our ward. Uh-huh. But recently with the, the coronavirus and so forth, I've just been released from that. And I haven't received a new calling yet because we're not meeting, of course. Of course. If you could pick a calling for yourself, then now that you've got this blank slate, whether it's a calling that actually exists or make one up, what would you pick? You know, I've had a lot of callings over the years, bishop, high counselor, and and so on. I think my favorite calling overall was what we used to call home teaching, what we call ministering today. I like one-on-one working with people and helping to meet their needs. That's my favorite kind of responsibility. It's an amazing way to make an impact for sure on that one-on-one level. The last question that we ask everyone, uh, I'll ask of you right now, and you can interpret this question however you would like. The question is, what is your favorite part of your faith? You know, people ask me a lot of questions because I've spent most of my time in history. But to me, knowledge is a very, very, very broad category. And there are lots of ways of coming to know things. History is one area of study of knowledge. As I said before, I study vast areas of knowledge, wide range. And there is a way to focus on your individual spirituality, something that a lot of people in today's modern world want to be. They want to be spiritual, even if they don't want to be institutionally affiliated. Many of them say that. Mm -hmm. Well, there are ways to become deeply spiritual. And to me, my faith, my membership in the church helps me achieve that level of spirituality, that connection between myself and my divine maker that gives me a sense of peace. It gives me a sense of happiness and joy that I think I can't get in any other way. Hmm. A life of service. I'm hoping that I can commit you while this uh, is being recorded, both audio and visually, uh, to come back again and to talk about not only your Mountain Meadows uh, book that will be coming out sometime in the future, but also about Mark Hoffman. Are you willing to commit to that? Happy to do it. Sounds like you've got the commitment pattern down. Yeah, well, uh, if that doesn't work, would tomorrow at 4.30 be better? <laughs> that was one of my favorite things about being a missionary. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Cultural Hall show. Ow!